0: Bienvenue and welcome to the Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing a chorus line. A five, six, seven, eight. But first, how are we doing? I hope that you, the listener, are doing well. I'm doing well. Patty, it seems that you are doing well. Patty's nodding. Yes, fantastic. Patty, I have a follow-up, a correction, an update, and a statement, okay? We're going to cover all of this in the opening segment, so let's begin with my follow-up. School of Rock is indeed on Wikipedia's list of longest-running Broadway shows, sitting at number 75 between Billy Elliot, the musical which clocked 1,312 performances, and Movin' Out, which clocked 1,303 performances. Now, for my correction, the song I cited from Whistle Down the Wind last week is actually called The Vaults of Heaven, not Open Up the Gates. I have an update. I finally tracked down my copy of the Kiss of the Spider Woman script, which had been listed by the Chicago Public Library system as being in transit for something like six or more weeks, but was in actuality simply sitting on a shelf downtown. I will probably read it eventually. That's not true. The time has passed. (laughs) I don't even know why I'm bothering to pretend. Not gonna read it. Not gonna read it. And finally, my statement. If you are upset about a woman of color playing Ariel... In Disney's remake of The Little Mermaid, you should not be allowed to raise children or operate a motor vehicle. And now that we have all of that covered, Batty, let's get those show facts. Show me the show facts the genesis of a chorus line can be traced to Tony Stevens and Mishan peacock a pair of dancers who saw how Broadway was operating in the mid 70s and were growing concerned fewer shows were being produced which meant fewer jobs for dancers so they decided to reach out to their peers and see if they could form a sort of creative think tank a commune or company that would serve as a home for performers looking to create their own opportunities Stevens and peacock weren't sure what, if anything, would be produced by this collective, but the thrill of devising their own works drove them forward. Michael Bennett, a phenomenally well-regarded dancer-turned-director and choreographer, was brought in by Stevens and Peacock to give this nebulous company an air of artistic authenticity and financial security. If anyone had the ability to back whatever crazy ideas these dancers came up with, it was going to be Bennett. And according to him, he had already been mulling over the idea of a show about dancers for many years, so the stars seemed to be in perfect alignment. Those who were invited to the company's first meeting gathered at midnight on January 26, 1974, at the Nicholas Exercise Center. Upon arriving, Bennett quickly took charge and oversaw a combination dance class and group therapy session that lasted until sunrise. He brought out a tape recorder and encouraged everyone in attendance to speak openly about their childhoods, their romantic relationships, and especially their love of dance. This first round of interviews, along with those recorded during subsequent sessions and one-on-one meetings, would form the foundation of a chorus line. Several of the dancers interviewed would go on to play versions of themselves in the show, after a rigorous audition process, of course, a chorus line would go on to become the winner of the 1976 Tony Award for Best Musical. It officially opened on Broadway on July 25th, 1975 at the Schubert Theater and ran for 6,137 performances. It is still the seventh longest-running Broadway show in history at this point, sitting between Wicked at number six, which clocks, which has recently clocked, I should say, 6,544 performances, and the 1976 revival of Oh Calcutta at number five, 5,959 performances. The Book of *A Chorus Line was written by James Kirkwood and Nicholas Dante. The music was by Marvin Hamlisch. The lyrics were by Edward Kleban. The director of the show was Michael Bennett. He also received a controversial Conceived by credit. We'll get into that in just a bit. The musical director of the original production was Donald Pippen. Think about the sun. Donald! I've done that joke. There's no, I know I've done that joke. The choreographers. Yes, that's right. Two choreographers, Michael Bennett and Bob Avian, set designed by Robin Wagner, lighting design by Theron, or maybe Taryn. Musser or Muser. Costume designed by Theone or Taoni you never know. Theone, let's go with Theone. Theone V. Aldredge and the original Broadway cast included Scott Allen, Renee Bowman, Carol Bishop, Pamela Blair, Wayne Salento, Chuck Sissel, Clive Clerk, Kay Cole, Ronald Dennis, Donna Drake, Brant Edwards, Patricia Garland, Carolyn Kirsch, Ron Coleman, Nancy Lane, Bayork Lee, Priscilla Lopez, Robert LuPone, Cameron Mason, Donna McKechnie, Don Percassi, Michael Serechia, Michael Stewart, I'm sorry, Michelle Stewart, Thomas J. Walsh, Sammy Williams, and Chrissy Wiltzak. And again, as always, I apologize if I mispronounced any of those names, Tony nods. Okay, so these are the awards that the show won. It, of course, won Best Musical. It won Best Book of a Musical, James Kirkwood and Nicholas Dante. It won Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical, Donna McKechnie. It won Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Musical, Sammy Williams. It won Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical, Kelly Bishop. It won Best Original Score, Marvin Hamlish and Edward Kleban. It won Best Direction of a Musical, Michael Bennett. It won Best Choreography, Michael Bennett and Bob Avian. And it won Best Lighting Design, Terran Musser, or Theron Muser. Uh, so here are the awards that I, the show was nominated for but did not win. It was nominated for Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Musical, Robert Lapone. It was nominated for Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical, Priscilla Lopez. And finally, it was nominated for Best Costume Design, Theone, 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 V. Aldredge. The production also won the 1976 Pulitzer Prize for Drama, but just to summarize the Tony nods, 12 nominations, and 9 awards at the end of the goddamn day. The history of A Chorus Line is steeped in legal drama, as the question of who exactly should own or benefit financially from the stories it showcases is a crucial one. When Michael Bennett's lawyer realized he was taping interviews with dancers and planning to use their life stories, a document was quickly drawn up and shoved into the hands of those dancers. This document granted Bennett the rights to those life stories in exchange for one dollar To reiterate, everyone initially received $1 in exchange for handing over their lives in a sense, to Bennett. Almost no one understood what they were signing. in the moment. They were simply handed forms during a short break, and the weight of the agreement was severely downplayed. Most were, understandably, quite furious afterwards. When the show eventually moved to Broadway, a new deal was negotiated, and the dancers received a very small portion of Michael Bennett's royalties. A person who benefited from this arrangement wound up earning upwards of 10 Ten thousand dollars a year when a chorus line was at the height of its powers. But Bennett was making millions, and this new deal only applied to money earned by the original Broadway production, not the subsequent wildly successful tours. So when a Broadway revival went into development for the 2006-2007 season, the original cast went to court to ensure they would be paid accordingly. Not only did they secure an undisclosed share of the revival's profits, they were paid retroactively for every tour that had been mounted over the last few decades. Good for them. I realize no one could have known how successful a chorus line would wind up being, but you should always... Always go back to the table if you feel you are not being reimbursed accordingly. I know this much. If my life story was featured in a show, even a sliver of it, I'd want to see those checks arriving in the mail. Now, the plot. ACL, that's what we're going to use every now and then. ACL, a nice little abbreviation. ACL is routinely misrepresented. As a show about fresh faced kids looking to break into show business. In reality, the show is about veteran dancers, those who have already made it, quote unquote, on Broadway, but are still struggling to secure their next job. When the show begins, we see these dancers auditioning for an unnamed musical, a process overseen by director Zach and his assistant, Larry. They whittle down the attendees to a group of 17, out of which four men and four women will ultimately be chosen. In a strange twist that initially takes the performers by surprise, Zach reveals how he wants to get to know them better as individuals before making any final decisions. It's an odd request to make of people who are so used to being reduced to their headshots and resumes, but with time, the group begins to open up about their experiences. These confessionals are the heart and core of the show, so I want to ensure they're covered in quick strokes. To do that, let's get a character breakdown. A note. In some instances, I am able to cite which real life dancer or dancers inspired a given character, but my notes are incomplete. For a full breakdown on the creation of these roles, I would suggest seeking out a book I will cite in just a few moments, but we want to do that character breakdown first, right? Right. Let's start with Zach. So, as we have stated, Zach is the director of this unnamed musical within the world of A Chorus Line. The role is obviously inspired by Michael Bennett, as both he and Zach are simultaneously parental and utterly heartless, depending on the moment and what they want to get out of someone. I realize we just began our character breakdown, but let's zero in on Bennett for a moment. Here's a quote from original cast member Bayork Lee describing what it was like to work with Michael Bennett. Quote, he pampered some people and some he pushed into corners and frightened, but everyone allowed it. I believe we all wanted our private moment with Michael to be touched by his genius to work with him. Yes, yes to be manipulated by him. We all wanted him to love us. Now, we're going to get more quotes about Michael Bennett as we keep moving forward, so for now, I'll save my commentary and let Lee's quote sit with everyone who is listening. I'll close my capsule summary of Zach, the character, by pointing out how, for quite a bit of time, the character never existed. The earliest workshop versions of A Chorus Line saw actors calling out and responding to a person we, the audience, couldn't hear, this voiceless director figure who sat at the back of the house. It sounds strange and unsettling. When you read about these workshops, you quickly understand just how little they had in terms of a concept. They basically had nothing beyond it's a show about dancers. And if it hadn't been for dancers who were willing to spend hundreds of hours generating ideas for steps and lines of dialogue, Michael Bennett would have been screwed. But I'm going to hold off on any further Bennett commentary for now. I don't want us to get too far off track. So, Larry, I mentioned Larry a moment ago. Larry is Zach's assistant. He teaches the dance combinations and acts as a liaison during the audition. There's a character named Mike. So Mike took his sister's place when she refused to attend a dance class when they were kids. He stuffed her ballet shoes with extra socks so he could fit into them. I'm pretty sure this character was inspired by Sammy Williams, though I could be misinterpreting my sources. Connie. Connie is a Chinese American who is consistently cast in child roles due to her height and youthful appearance. Connie was inspired by Bayork Lee. Sheila. Sheila is slightly older and more cynical than the other dancers at the audition. She's initially resistant to Zack's line of questioning, but eventually admits how ballet allowed her to escape the calamity of her parents' crumbling marriage. Bebe dove into ballet after her mother routinely told her she was not, and never would be, beautiful. Maggie routinely fantasized as a child about her father looking like an Indian chief and asking her to dance. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you about that. (laughs) Greg is a gay man who describes how a makeout session led to his homosexual awakening. Then we have Christine and Al. Christine and Al are a married couple who often audition together. Christine is embarrassed to admit she can't sing, and Al routinely completes her sentences, much to her chagrin. Christine was partly inspired by Renee Bowman, who also had a tortured relationship with singing, but the concept of a married couple auditioning together was inspired by... By Denise and Steve Buchfor In an early version of A Chorus Line, the character of Al was incredibly homophobic and got into a fight with Greg, but this was cut for time. Did I mention the show was four hours long at one point? It was four hours long, and then I swear to God, if I am interpreting my sources correctly, it's somehow clocked in at five and a half hours, five and a half hours after a series of cuts and changes were made. That's insane. It's all in the book I read, which I promise I will cite soon. But yeah, five and a half hours. There was an entire monologue about a character's mother dying in a boat accident, for crying out loud. Anyway, Diana Morales. So Diana Morales, or as she is commonly referred to, I believe, in the script, Morales. Morales describes a particularly awful class she took while attending the High School of Performing Arts. She was inspired by Priscilla Lopez, who herself had a notorious run at the high school. Richie she received a college basketball scholarship and studied to become a kindergarten teacher only to panic and abandon his original plans upon graduating Val underwent plastic surgery upon discovering her physical appearance was preventing her from landing jobs as a dancer Mitzi Hamilton was the inspiration for the character though the role initially went to Pamela Blair Mitzi Hamilton would later play Val on Broadway. Cassie is a dancer who left New York to find success in LA and has now returned to the Big Apple. Desperate for work She once lived with Zach and their History, their relationship Affects his ability to take her Seriously since he feels Cassie is too talented to be an Anonymous face in the chorus Donna McKechnie was the inspiration For Cassie. She would go on to Marry Michael Bennett in 1976 But they were divorced Within months. They remained good friends Until Michael Bennett's AIDS related death In 1987. And then We have Paul. Paul delivers a lengthy monologue about his experiences as a gay man and a drag performer. This monologue initially began by outlining the character's rape at the age of six. But this was cut after being deemed too heavy for the show. Paul eventually breaks down and is comforted by Zack in a rare moment of warmth on the director's part. Later, while the dancers are running through a combination, Paul further injures a knee that recently underwent surgery. He is gingerly led out of the theater, which leads Zack to ask, what would you do if you could no longer dance? So let's break this down for a second. Paul's monologue was inspired by the life of Nicholas Dante, who did a lot of work on the script for A Chorus Line before up-and-coming playwright James Kirkwood was brought in for additional support. Paul's injury was initially inspired by Sammy Williams, who sprained his back during a performance of the musical Seesaw shortly before he was set to participate in ACL's first workshop. Michael Bennett then faked an injury while dancing in front of his cast in order to see how they would react insisting they use those feelings in the show. I'm going to allow myself a bit of time for Bennett commentary right now. Can you imagine if a director wanted you to, let's say, be scared on stage and decided the only way they could make that happen is if they broke into your house, hid in your closet, and jumped out at you while wielding a knife? And then as you're screaming and clutching at your chest, they say... Now, remember those feelings for later. You would want that person locked up, right? Of course you would. I'll move on for now, but oh, do I have some additional words for our good buddy Michael Bennett. During the show's big finale, the entire cast appears sporting glitzy gold tuxedos and top hats. It's a number from the unnamed musical they strove so hard to be a part of, and as an enormous mirror rises above them, their reflections are multiplied into infinity. The message is clear. They are the latest in a long line of ever-dedicated, ever-joyous chorus members. History may not remember each of their names, but in this moment... They live to do what they love. The lights go down as they high-kick their way into oblivion. For the purposes of this episode, I listened to the 1975 original Broadway cast album of A Chorus Line, as well as the 2006 Broadway Revival cast album. I would recommend listening to both albums. The original is a stone-cold classic, but the revival provides a more complete picture of the show. It offers a fair amount of dialogue from the book, as well as fuller versions of I Hope I Get It and The central montage. The original recording likely made cuts and changes to ensure what remained could fit onto a single album, but for all of its tweaks, the impact of the score is not diminished a bit. I watched the Tony Awards performance led by the original cast. They present I Hope I Get It almost in its entirety. The crowd goes wild from moment one, and who can blame them? Now, this pales in comparison, the 2007 Tony Awards performance, not because of the dancers. I think you should skip this performance because the editing is so frantic and you can barely discern what's going on as the cast performs outside of Radio City Musical. It's a huge disappointment. Don't even bother with it. I also dipped into the book On the Line, the creation of A Chorus Line. This was written by Robert Villagas, Bayork Lee, and Tommy Walsh. It was initially published in 1990 and then later reissued with a preface addressing the 2006 revival. So huzzah, we've named the mysterious book. It was killing you. What? wasn't it? You were squirming in your pantaloons, admit it. On the Line provides a much more comprehensive history of ACL than I ever could provide with my usual crash course, so if you're of a mind to go deeper with this week's subject, I would recommend tracking it down. Now, for the sake of transparency, I will admit I only read about 70% of the book, as I had to move quickly. These podcasts come down the pike faster than you might think. One major takeaway I had while reading this book was how many of the performers were insulted, upon realizing their life stories were being used as audition sides, audition material. Most didn't know they would be reciting their own experiences until they walked into the audition room, so I'm not surprised it rattled them. Oh, you want me to read this transcription about my parents' failed marriage, and then you're gonna have a hundred other people read it after I leave? Cool, this isn't bizarre or (laughs) fucked up at all. Remember Tony Stevens and Mishan Peacock, the dance who got this ball rolling? Well, Tony was cast in the first workshop of A Chorus Line, but wound up working on the original production of Chicago instead of following ACL to Broadway. Michonne wasn't cast at all in any iteration of the show. The lesson being, theater is a brutal wind, and it can blow you in any direction, so take care of yourself. Now, I'd like to read a few more quotes from the book. The first quote that you heard earlier from Bayork Lee, that was from this book on the line. Now, I'd like to read a few more quotes from that book regarding what it was like to work with our old pal Michael Bennett. Here's one from Pam Blair. Quote, he was excellent at manipulating. To be a good director, you have to know how to manipulate. It just depends on how you do it. Michael could be very nasty, but he was excellent. That's why he was so successful. He was a master at that. He could convince you that he really cared about you. I keep thinking about all those moments that he did that to me, and he could see in my face that I believed him. I wonder if in any of these moments he did care. It's embarrassing to know how many times I gave him that power, relinquished that part of me. And here's another quote, this one from Tommy Walsh, quote, Sometimes he'd be very supportive. I would do a new monologue at that evening's performance, and Michael would say in front of the whole group, Tommy, you were really great tonight, or whatever. But there would be other times in rehearsals where he would scream, Don't do it like a faggot! There definitely were extremes in his direction. Every day was a game. Quote, Now I apologize. I realize I should have said something before. I dropped the slur in case anyone is triggered by that word, so I I do apologize in all honesty. These quotes are important because they absolutely inform my final thoughts, so keep those and the others you have heard in mind as we keep marching forward. Tuck those quotes in the squishy folds of your brains. Thanks. So in regards to the documentary Every Little Step, I have seen Every Little Step once before and considered revisiting it, but I chose to spend more time with the On the Line book instead. The doc focuses primarily on the casting process for the 06 revival, and I would recommend it. I also want to talk about my college production. I was the spotlight operator for my college production of AC So I watched the show every night for two weeks and fell in love with it rapidly. Mitzi Hamilton, who inspired Val, if you'll recall, came in to recreate Michael Bennett and Bob Avian's original choreography. Her assistant, who I am pretty sure, I'm only partly sure on this, so, you know, don't take me to court on this. I'm pretty sure her assistant worked at the college. And I heard at one point that this assistant told the women in the cast she could help Manage their eating disorders if anyone currently had one. Now, I was not present when this was stated, so we really can't take this story, you know, 100% for face value, but I have heard about it several times, so tuck that away in your wet brain folds as well for the future. In regards to the 1985 film adaptation, which stars Michael Douglas, who's a disgusting piece of shit, never forget, if you're not familiar with why. He should be considered a disgusting piece of shit. You can Google it. Like every little step, I have seen the film adaptation, but did not revisit it for the sake of this episode. I don't think it's as bad as most think, but it is bad, particularly in how it replaces fan-favorite material with crummy tunes like Surprise, Surprise and Let Me Dance For You. It also recontextualizes what I did for love and has the unfortunate distinction of including, I forgot I already had this in my notes, Michael Douglas in its cast. So it's literally of sins is fairly long overall. Doesn't the film also update the time in which the story is set to 1985? If so, such a mistake. This is a show about people who lived in the 70s. Don't mess with success. I have been interested in a new film adaptation ever since college, but my fan casting is woefully incomplete at this point. I think Jake Gyllenhaal could work as Zach, and Megan Hilty would be a good fit for For Sheila, maybe, Lin-Manuel Miranda as Larry, perhaps, who knows? That might be a stretch, dance-wise. Tom Holland should be involved on some level. Now, that boy can dance. Boy, can that boy, Foxtrot, boy, oh boy. But can he sing? That's the question. The majority of these roles would need to go to triple threat performers, a distinction we cannot apply to most A-list actors. On the flip side, we cannot allow body doubling or dubbing, As this would only disrespect the spirit of the material, let me know your casting thoughts if you have them.
1: Again. Step, kick, kick, leap, kick, touch. 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 Right. That connects with turn, turn, out, in, touch. Step, step, kick, kick, leap, kick, touch. Got it? Going on, and turn, turn, touch down, back step, pivot step, walk, 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 right. Let's do the whole combination, facing away from the mirror, from the top, a five, six, seven, eight...
0: First kicks in near the beginning of I Hope I Get It. It's like you've blinked and found yourself mid-loop on a fucking roller coaster. You're barreling forward at 100 miles an hour, and it's an absolute thrill. Only those who are dead to this world will be unaffected by this shift into high gear. What this song gets right is how quickly your state of mind can turn on a dime when attending one of these cattle call auditions. All at once, you seem, within reaching distance of the finish line, woefully inadequate, ready to quit, and determined to prove your worth to anyone who may doubt you. Life's biggest, most infuriating questions hit you without warning during these auditions. Why am I here? What is the meaning of all this? What can I do to survive? This song is awesome. It's a marathon of an opening sequence that ends on one of the most iconic images in musical theater a line of dancers, each holding a copy of their headshot so it covers their actual face. We hold on this image as the orchestra pounds out a single chord. I got you. It's a stark and eerie image, and it earns instant, guaranteed applause from the crowd. Fans of A Chorus Line live for this image, and their ovation can last four minutes. I have seen it happen. Let's talk about I Can Do That.
2: I got to class and had it made, and so I stayed the rest of my life.
0: I can do that. Sing, and Dance 10 Looks 3 form a trio of fluffy character pieces. Every entry in this trio is memorable and successful, but to varying degrees. What I appreciate about I Can Do That is how it gets in and gets out. We don't hover on Mike and his story for longer than necessary, which is a point School of Rock could have stood to embrace. This is easy, breezy covergirl comedic material. It tickles and pleasantly sticks with the ear, but I've always been curious about this one lyric. The lyric is, quote, All thanks to sis, now married and fat. What does Mike have against his sister? I've always wondered about this. Are we supposed to draw a line between her dropping out of dance class and being overweight? I think Mike's body-shaming inclinations should be examined in therapy. That would be my recommendation. The thing about Mike is he essentially disappears after this song, though according to On the Line, this was not the original plan. He was set to sing another song called Joanne, in which he recounts the good times he spent with a childhood friend named Joanne. Joanne! The number is described in the book as having an old-fashioned Gene Kelly tone or vibe, but it sounds disposable. I can understand why an actor would be bored playing a character who shuts up after the first 10 minutes of a performance, but I personally do not need more of Mike.
3: Daddy
2: always thought that he married beneath him. That's what he said, that's what he said. When he proposed, he informed my mother he was probably her very last chance. And though she was 22, though she was 22, though she was 22, she married him. Life with my dad wasn't ever a picnic, more like a come as you are. When I was five, I remember my mother dug earrings out of the car. I knew that they weren't hers, but it wasn't something you'd want to discuss. He wasn't warm. Well, not to her. Well, not to us. But everything was beautiful at the ballet. Graceful men lift lovely girls in water. Beautiful at the ballet. Hey, I was happy at the ballet. That's when I started class. I was deep and very. Narrow.
0: Goodness gracious, At The Ballet. At The Ballet is nearly six minutes long, and it still leaves me craving more. How can you not enjoy living within this song? It's the best number in the show, Bar None, Ashes to Ashes, Dust to Dust, The Bigger the Pie Ten, the Bigger the Crust. It's a fantastic piece of craftsmanship from Hamlish and Kleban, suddenly stirring and blending the stories of Sheila, Bibi, and Maggie until they're whipped into a singular emotional storm. Kelly Bishop points out in On the Line. The song has three signature melody lines, where most songs only have two. The first is now da-na-na-na, which can be associated with the lyric, Daddy always thought he had married beneath him. That's what he said. That's what he said. And the second is everyone was beautiful at the ballet. And the third is, of course, up a steep and very narrow stairway. I had never known the song was unique in this way. Hamlish, You groovy dude. You've created a veritable turducken of a song, I do say. Of all the sequences I'd like to see realized in a new film adaptation, Add to the Ballet is the one I want the most. My mind bursts with visual possibilities. The stage expanding into infinity, the women dancing alongside their childhood selves, swan lake dancers appearing out of thin air in a bit, I would clearly be stealing from Anastasia's journey to the past. It would be a feast for the senses, and... Maybe a basis for a lawsuit, but uh, it would be a face for the census, I do say.
2: Oh, I know you're thinking, what a crazy... But I really couldn't, I could never really, what I couldn't do was... Three
1: blind mice,
2: three blind mice! It isn't intentional! She's doing her best! Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle She gets depressed. But what I lack in pitch, I sure make up in...
0: Sing is the second entry in ACL's comedic trio, and I would argue it's the best of the lot. It's wisely fleet-footed in its delivery of the central joke, that being Christine's inability to deliver a single note. Her plight generates laughter, but you wind up falling in love with the character instantly. Sing is one of the rare songs in a chorus line where an actor can play around a bit, specifically in how they realize Christine's tone deafness via the phrases Three Blind Mice and Jingle Bells. Goofy's singing pleases me to no end, and I would want to see a hundred actors give their take on this material. Three blind mice, jingle bells, jingle bells. I think I'm just recreating the 2006 version of the song. Make a meal of it, I say to you actors. Have a ball. It's Christine's moment in the spotlight, baby. The
1: worst thing in school was every time the teacher'd call on me. I'd be hard. I'd be hard. Really. I'd have to lean up against the desk like this. And the teacher would say, stand up straight. I can't. I have a pain in my side. Stand up straight. Or walking down the hall, you'd have to walk like this with all your books stacked up in front of you. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was only me. I thought I was a sex maniac. You are? I did, too. I mean, it didn't go down for three years. Oh, and the bus. Oh, the bus was the worst. I just look at a bus and bingo. Well, then there was the time I was making out in the back seat with Sally Ketchum. We went necking, and I was feeling her boobs, and feeling her boobs. And after about an hour or so, she says, Ooh, don't you want to feel anything else? And I suddenly thought to myself, no, I don't. Did that come as a surprise to you? Well, I guess, yeah. It's probably the first time I realized I was homosexual. And I got so depressed because I thought being gay meant being an outcast the rest of my life, a bum. And I said, gee, I'll never get to wear nice clothes. And I was so into the clothes then, I had this fabulous pair of powder and pink gabardine pants. Nice <laughs>
0: Now let's talk about the show's central montage, which is officially known as Montage or you may know it as Hello 12, Hello 13, Hello Love. This is the moment in a chorus line when the dam bursts and all of the characters air out their laundry. It's frenetic and employs a cinematic style and pace the likes of which theater hadn't really seen when the show premiered. Highlights for me include Greg, a character who blazed a trail in the 70s by simply existing. His dialogue may be limited but in a flash, he is drawn as a fully realized human being. Greg has felt shame in relation to his sexuality, but he's grown past it and isn't afraid to be open among strangers. That's amazing. I love Greg so much. Another highlight, Mike saying in relation to the subject of boners, Mike says, I thought it was only me. I thought I was a sex maniac. To which Connie and Maggie flatly reply, You are... What a good joke. That shit, that joke is fucking bulletproof. Love that joke. Now let's talk about a song that is tucked within the montage, Nothing.
4: And everybody's going, shh, shh, shh. I feel the snow. I feel the cold. I feel the air. And Mr. Cop turns to me and he says, okay, Morales, what did you feel? And I said, nothing. I'm feeling nothing, and he says nothing Could get a girl transferred They all felt something, but I felt nothing Except the feeling that this bullshit was absurd But I said to myself, hey, it's only the first week Maybe it's genetic, they don't have bobsleds in San Juan Second week, more advanced than we had to be table be a sports car ice cream cone. Mr. Carp. he would say, very good, except Morales. Try Morales all alone. And I dug right down to the bottom of my soul to see how an ice cream felt. Yes, I dug right down to the bottom of my soul Morales. You should transfer to Girls High. You'll never be an actress, never.
0: Jesus Christ! Morales is the role you want when going out for a chorus line. She gets two of the best songs in the show, Nothing and What I Did for Love. How do you even describe Morales in a way that accurately encapsulates her greatness? I think she has the biggest heart, the best sense of humor. I want to know Morales in real life and be one of her closest friends. I think I fall for Morales Morales during the nothing number because I can relate to her feelings of humiliation as someone who studied acting. I've been in that acting class she describes. I've had students who were my age jeer at me and point out my limitations as an actor, and it was all sanctioned by a professor. This was an exercise. Not going to go further into it. It's not worth it. But unlike Morales, I never had the courage to dip out of that class and save myself further anger. Morales is an icon for any generation. I don't blame her for being unaffected by the death of her crummy teacher. He sounds like a jerk, and we are nothing if not the impression we leave on others. Have fun in purgatory, Mr. Carp. Now let's talk about Gimme the Ball.
2: And I thought, shit Shippity. Shit. Shippity. Oh, what are you Shippity. gonna be Shippity. When you Shippity. get shoved
4: out Shippity. of here Honey, ain't nobody
2: Shippity. gonna be standing Shippity. there With no scholarship to life And I
3: was scared Sca- yeah. Shippity. Sca-
0: Shippity. Sca- Going back to my college production of A Chorus Line I must point out How Richie, a character written specifically for black actors, was given to a white guy. We had black dancers who could have easily handled the role, but those in charge went with this white guy and gave him extensions. Extensions! The show already has so few defined characters of color. Why would you take away one of those opportunities from your students of color? It baffles me to this day was... Was it his idea to get the extensions? He was that kind of person. I don't know. Hmm, that is the mystery that will haunt me to my dying day. Whose idea was it to give the white guy in the cast in 1970s, like, Tina Turner extensions? Like, 1970s Tina Turner hair. That's the hair that was on this white guy. <laughs> it was, like, silky. And it, like, went straight down and it, there was a swoop. There was a light curl at the end. <laughs> I cannot get over it. I'm a fan of the gimme the ball section of the montage, but Ronald Dennis, who originally played the character Richie, was decidedly irritated by the limitations of his role. Here's another quote from On the Line, quote... I wish the number had been better, meaning people made me realize how inconsequential the part was. I've met so many people who say they saw the original company and ask me what part I did. I used to get so furious at that. I would get nasty and ask them if they remember to give me the ball, and they were so surprised to find out it was me. I was shocked that people were so unobservant. Invariably, it was someone white. Never a black person. Black people knew. Quote.
4: But after a while, I caught on. I mean, I saw what they were hiring. I also swiped my dance card once after an audition, and on a scale of 10, they gave me. For dance, 10. For looks, three. Well. Dance 10 looks three And I'm still on unemployment Dancing for my own enjoyment That ain't it, kid That ain't it, kid Dance 10 looks three It's like to die Left the theater and called the doctor For my appointment to buy Tits and
0: 10 looks three is the cap on our trilogy of comedic character pieces. So let's take a second to review the effectiveness of each. I Can Do That may not be a gut buster, but it can coast on an actor's charm. Sing is a total hoot because its game plays on Christine's clearly defined conflict. Dance 10 is more rooted in a character's philosophy. It's like Sally Brown's My New Philosophy from You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, but with a splash of vulgarity. The problem with Dance 10 is how that vulgarity puts a surprising, frustrating limit on what it can offer to make us laugh. There's really only one joke here, that being Val's use of the phrase tits and ass. This will goose a laugh from your audience because they're not expecting it, but they will not laugh the second time they hear it or the third, or the fourth, or the fifth time. The song is a trap because it leaves you with nowhere to go once its hand has been played. If it were shorter, this wouldn't be too big a problem, but Dance 10 sticks around for quite a while, oddly. Not to say it's a chore, I just wish it had a second beat. Pam Blair relates in On The Line how this number typecast her as a dancing bombshell for 10 years before she was considered for serious roles, so I don't think referring to it as a trap is unfair. It's a trap! and the Mirror is a great demonstration of how Hamlish blends rock and a more traditional Broadway sound. A Chorus Line was the first musical he had ever written after having provided dance arrangements for the show Seesaw. He has 48 film credits, including The Spy Who Loved Me, for which he wrote its score and theme, Nobody Does It Better, and The Sting, but I'm getting distracted by his mile-long resume back to The Music and the Mirror. I'm getting distracted again. Until a chorus line came around, it was understood that rock musicals stood apart from everything else in musical theater. Rock musicals were about hippies and had their own sound, one that was viewed as incompatible with the razzle-dazzle of the Great White Way, but Hamlish dispelled this myth. He invokes a bit of funk here, a dash of swagger. The music and the mirror features bright horns and head-rattling percussion, as well as a funcadelic baseline that complements and works within rather than overwhelms the sort of soundscape older audiences would have expected. It's a delicious cocktail, it is. When Cassie sings, her lyrics are not modern in a self-conscious or fluffed-up sense. They express old-school musical theater desire at its most pure. Give me a chance to come through. I mean, picture, I, I picture Cassie here with her arms out at all times, reaching, grasping, always shooting out toward the void. And when she dances, During this number It's a fight for her life As a performer Bam Boom This song reduces me To comic book interjections And leaves me breathless Oh, my breath Where is it? One, two When the characters are first learning the dance combination for one, which is a song from the unnamed musical they're auditioning for. Zach peppers Cassie with criticisms. He doesn't think she can blend in with the rest of the group because she's too talented. She can't help but pop when the job of a chorus member is to become anonymous. After a while, he drags Cassie out of the line and says, in effect, look at them up there. You want to be like them? They're nothing but wind-up toys. They're puppets. They're buffoons. And when Zach says this, reality snaps, and we see the dancers through his cynical lens. Suddenly their smiles are manic. Their physicality is wooden. Their voices are overly loud and too articulate. It's genuinely so spooky. But Cassie refuses to write off her peers and makes it clear how she is proud to stand alone. Alongside them. Cassie, you are my hero. The Zacks of this world need to be told off more often. Michael Bennett, I'm coming for you in my final thoughts. It's within arm's reach. I'm reaching for it, baby. You're gonna get a real fucking mouthful.
3: Kiss today, goodbye.
0: I say this without hesitation or any qualifications. What I did for love is perfect. Remember last week when I said musicals no longer produced top 40 hits? What I Did for Love was one of those breakout songs, having since been covered by no less than 16 major artists. As it should have been, What I Did for Love works outside the context of a chorus line because its lyrics can be applied to universal human experience. Everyone acts out of a desire to earn and benefit from the effects of love. Our pursuit of it can result in pain, but the song makes it clear we should dedicate no time to regret. So yes, it's a song for the masses, but let's go back to the original context. What I Did for Love is about the love an artist has for their craft and what they're willing to do to keep practicing it. You can't witness an injury like Paul's and not ask yourself, how much am I willing to give? Or ignore, how will I know if I have pushed myself too far? All I can wish for any artist, myself, me, Jonathan, hello, is the ability to love themselves first. Because if you can't protect yourself, you'll wind up giving too much away to human leeches who don't deserve you. The price of getting through their doors and into their venues will be too high. Remember the assistant from my college who talked about managing eating disorders as if they were an inevitable, necessary part of a dancer's life? These are the people I'm talking about. Don't let anyone convince you your worth can only be measured by your looks or how much sweat you can wring out of yourself in the name of making them look good. Fuck those bad people. You should be the champion of your own story, not them. And again, I heard that story secondhand. I don't want to get in trouble. oy, oy. oy. So it's hearsay, but it's really not. I've I, 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 I'm aware. I'm very aware of what was going on within the confines of that production. There was some fucked up shit going on in that production. Never mind, it's all it's all made up. It's a fairy tale story. Hmm. Yeah, don't come for me, lawyers.
3: She walks into a room and you know
2: she's uncommonly rare, very unique, parapetetti, poetic, and she. She
3: walks into a room, and you know from her manly poise, effortless world, she's a special girl strolling. Can't help all of her qualities
2: extolling. Loaded with charisma is my jauntily sauntering Emily Chandler. She walks into a room, and you know you must
0: shuffle along, join the parade. She's the quintessence of making the grave. This is what you call traveling. Oh, stretch yourself. fun game I like to play while listening to the full version of One, which acts as the show's big finale, is try to decipher the lyrics and determine if they're anything beyond meaningless. Newsflash, the lyrics are unintelligible and laughably hollow, which is the whole point. Of course, that's why it's such a great song. One is representative of the splashy musical at its most cliched, the tier of Broadway where razzmatazz thumbs its nose at the very idea of substance. This is what our protagonists worked so hard to be a part of, a Busby knockoff where the costumes quite literally pull focus from what makes them individuals, their faces. But we have an advantage over the common audience member because we have spent time with these characters. They're not faceless shards in a twinkling, gaudy bobble. That's Cassie. That's Morales. These are individuals, imperfect and scared, but highly skilled and courageous. As hell, they may be singing a song that makes MAME look like Carousel's soliloquy, but damn it if they aren't transforming the material into a surefire showstopper. They're doing what they do best because it's what they have to offer to the world. And how can you not cheer them on? I know my heart bursts with pride when I witness this finale. See, this is the genius of A Chorus Line. It humanizes people we might normally take for granted by bringing their stories to our attention, and that's what good art does. That's the finale of my deconstruction of a chorus line score. And now let's get a word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. Hi there it's me sandy the dog from the musical and you Oh, I'm just taking a break from being a dog to tell you that, oh, if I were a human, if I were a human, I would love drinking coffee. Oh, I see all these rich people drinking that coffee all the time. And every time I I, oh, I think to myself, oh, give me, give me, give me, give me coffee. What's it say on the can? I can read. I'm literate. I took lessons. on Phonics worked for me, baby. You're a rough. It says five, six, seven, eight on that coffee can, and I don't want it so bad. <laughs> I'm vomit at the mouth. I'm how at mouth baby give me that shit annie give me that shit right now ruff, ruff, ruff. hey daddy warbucks get your ass to work doing whatever you do and leave the coffee can from this dog a barark a have five six seven eight coffee you can count on it, baby if only
1: i were human bark bark
0: I'll begin my final thoughts by making a simple, crude statement and follow it up with some deeper reflection. My statement, my crude statement, is as follows. Fuck Michael Bennett. I have met men like Michael Bennett. They disturb and disgust me, and it's partly because of them I decided to give up my pursuit of being a professional actor. They manipulate, intimidate, drain, frighten, abuse, and destroy so many people who don't have the tools to protect themselves, and they hide behind their reputation so as to avoid all consequence. Guys like Michael Bennett would like us to think they're complicated. Oh, he was tortured. He had demons. Did you know he battled? with his own sexuality, yeah, cool. Those are all explanations. They're not justifications. Nothing justifies the emotional terrorism of people who are too afraid of losing a job. I love A Chorus Line with all my heart, and the only way I can do that is by discrediting Michael Bennett and his direct enablers to the benefit of all else involved. I brand you, Michael Bennett, your name I sully, Turn in your medallions on the way out, because the only people who I want to honor are the dancers you thoughtlessly push around, like playthings. For the record, after reading most of On the Line, I'm really frustrated with cast member Bayork Lee as well. I can't really blame her for playing into Bennett's hands and becoming one of his weird, unhealthy conspirators, but she told Sammy Williams he needed to butch it up, quote, Because Bennett thought he was too effeminate and that sent Williams into a tailspin of depression. No one should be surprised by how much this enrages me. I don't care if it was the 70s. My heart breaks when I read about that moment. You are not an effective leader if your leadership is dependent on the fear and despair of the people you claim to lead. Now, of course, in 1976, the Chorus Line won the Tony Award for Best Musical. The other nominees were Bubbling Brown Sugar. Ah, remember Bubbling Brown Sugar? Bubbling Brown sugar. Sugar! Chicago and Pacific Overtures. We have visited this season once before, yes, for bubbling brown sugar. But my tune has not changed. Chicago is a worthy contender for the top spot, but it cannot dethrone ACL in my mind. I won't allow it. Now let's talk about ranking the show. Understanding I have put Michael Bennett in the biggest, sturdiest doghouse one could possibly construct, I'm putting a chorus line in my number one spot. I get goosebumps every time I sit down with the recordings, and I am so grateful for the emotions it produces within me. I want to further emphasize how this placement is greatly inspired by the dancers who brought this show to life. I don't blame you for wanting to feel special and accepted. I completely relate to that. I I don't blame you for wanting uh, to feel as if your work matters, that it's important. I don't blame you for wanting to be a part of a brand new show that was crafted specifically around you. I just wish you had been led by someone other than Michael Bennett. And I would rather a chorus line not exist at all if it meant that you could have been spared the damage he thoughtlessly inflicted upon you. But since a chorus line does exist, I want you to know how grateful I am to you. You are special and your work absolutely matters. So thank you. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Show-related ephemera. Okay, so... I think I'm just going to play this clip, this audio, without any context, and then on the other side of it, we'll we'll sort of dig into this. So, Patty, let's play that clip. Have
3: you tried Folgers Coffee Singles? One coffee. In its own filter. Singular sensation. Every single cup you brew. It's like brewing a whole pot. One. One cup at a time. Singular sensation. Fresh brewed mornings for you. There's ground roast in here. In its own filter. Folgers. Here's Coffee Singles, one sensational way to wake up.
0: All right, so this is a Folgers coffee ad, which, of course, utilizes the melody line from One. Uh, If I had my way, every show-related ephemera segment would be dedicated to a commercial that reworks a Broadway standard. This kind of advertising never ceases to amuse me because it's just so dopey and dumb. My favorite part of this ad is the guy who says, In In its its own own filter." filter! Not once! But twice, they simply reuse the footage in In its its own own filter. filter. I'll never get tired of it. This ad has been sitting in my special nest of show-related nuggets since I first conceived this podcast, so I'm glad it's now free to breathe deeply and fly, fly, you dumb little commercial. Fly in its its own own filter. filter. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rodgers and Hammerstein show, the Wild West Butterscotch Caper of 1976, and everything that followed, including the family dog whom the girlies call Pebo. Everyone ready? Then away we go. Ladies and gentlemen, I have stepped off of the musical carousel, which <laughs> I didn't make a big scene about it this time, but the musical carousel did initially send me back to Sweeney Dodd, So I yelled at the carousel, I gave it an old bop on the nose, and then it dropped me off at the 1973 nominee for uh, the Tony Award for Best Musical, of course, duh. This show ran for 505 performances, and it is sugar, baby. That's right, the musical adaptation of the film is some like it hot. So that is what we will be discussing next time we gather. I want to give you an episode release schedule because Chris and I are attending Two weddings in the very near future, which means I'm going to be taking a couple of weeks off. So I just want to lay that. I want to put this on the record right now. So this episode, episode twenty six, is coming to you. Of course, you're listening to it on July tenth. Episode twenty seven will drop on July seventeenth, and then the twenty uh, eighth episode, as well as the latest edition of the Snub Club, will be dropping on July thirty first. Then episode twenty nine will get to you on August seventh. Then we'll have episode thirty on August 21st, and then we will have episode 31 and the August edition of the Snub Club on August 28th. So just keep that in mind, write that down, just don't panic when those weeks come up where an episode doesn't drop. I'll remind everyone on Twitter, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. If you want to donate to the show, you absolutely can. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars, and I would encourage encourage you, if you can, if if you're fine with signing up with Patreon, I would love it if you even gave just a dollar. I think if everyone gave a dollar starting this week, that we would get all, we would get so close. I'm sure we would get so close, if not overcome our goal, our stretch goal, which I'm going to talk about in just a wee second. But if you donate a dollar, not only will you get a verbal shout-out each and every week, but you'll get access to my episode about the 73rd Annual Tony Awards broadcast. Uh, Let's do those verbal shout-outs now, okay? So uh, last week, I referred to this listener as Christopher, but we had a little bit of a sit-down rap session, and now he is being referred to officially as Chris JC, so thank you, Chris JC. We also have Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. If you go up one tier, not only will you get the verbal shout-outs, not only will you get the Tony Awards coverage episode, but you'll get a musical shout-out in the style of a character or composer that you choose. Now, let's say you go up even one more tier, a $5 tier. Not only do you get the verbal shout-outs, the Tony Awards episode, and the musical shout-out, but you get to determine, you get a one-time opportunity to tell me what show I should cover on the podcast. And you get access to all 12 episodes that comprise the first season of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, and if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I just described, plus access to the snub Club, which is a series dedicated to the Broadway shows that were never nominated for Best Musical. Uh, The July edition of the show is going to be dedicated to Jekyll and Hyde. I have not chosen my August uh, subject, but uh, oh, if you subscribe, you'll be the first to know at the end of the Jekyll and Hyde episode what we're going to cover in August. Now, all of that donation money, what does it go toward? Well, it allows me to purchase cast recordings that I don't already have, rent movie adaptations of the shows we're talking about. It also helps me off The costs of hosting the show through Podbean. And here's our stretch goal. I mentioned this. If we ever get to the point where we're bringing in $100 or more in total monthly donations, that will result in my producing M3, The Movie Musical Man. That is going to be a series in which I, in every episode, this will be a monthly series, and in every episode, I will talk about three movie musicals that are linked by some sort of unifying theme. Now, you can write a review of the show, and I strongly encourage you to do so. Write a review uh, via the Apple podcast app. I think I referred to it as the Apple podcast store. I'm just so, I'm so, I'm still, I apologize. I'm, I'm used to the iTunes language. So I, I'm an old man. Okay. I'm nearing my mid thirties mark. Okay. All right. So let this old man breathe for a second. But here's another little goal that I've placed for our listeners. If we ever get to a point where people have written 30 reviews or we have 35 star ratings, let's say, uh, that will result in me, uh, recording an episode dedicated to the disney descendants franchise i really want to do that but we we got to get either a hundred dollars you know in total monthly donations or we got to get 30 reviews via apple podcasts so whatever you like whatever you want whatever you want baby just get it done listeners i order you i'm the musical man and you are my musical minions no i'm kidding i'm a nice guy if you stream the show you're likely doing it through musicalmanpod.podbean.com or stitcher Follow us on Twitter. Why not? At Musical Man Pod. I apologize for those of you who are annoyed by my yelling at everybody about Ariel the casting of Ariel and the little mermaid oh I really I cannot deal with those people uh, follow me on Twitter email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com thank you Alex green for our beautiful logo thank you Zach little for our wonderful music and that's that doorbell baby and you know what that means Eh, you know what that sound means yes yeah, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting oh well we'll catch up some other time specifically on the next episode of the musical man so long farewell a fetish and good night right
3: its own filter.